Luke chapter 6. We'll pick up in verse 20. We'll look at Luke's condensed version of the Beatitudes. As we continue into Luke, we're going to see more and more of this theme of His blessing and God's ultimate uh, reckoning for those who are marginalized, the poor, those who are suffering in this life. Very much a theme in the book of Luke, and a lot like you see in James. And there will be a reckoning. And uh, it's probably part of the reason that we see Luke emphasize, uh, as Matthew emphasized, blessed are the poor in spirit. That is true. Luke says, blessed are the poor. Not going to give us the opportunity uh, to spiritualize that text while I'm poor in the spirit. Luke says, no, blessed are the poor. Or, or uh, in a sense, blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness, as Matthew says. Luke says, blessed are you who hunger. Blessed are you who hunger. So, uh, really a great compliment to what Matthew writes. We're in chapter 6, beginning in verse 20, Luke's condensed version of the Beatitudes. He records four of the blessings and then includes four contrasting woes. Beginning in verse 20. And turning his gaze towards the disciples, Jesus began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. The word of the Lord. Well, today we're going to answer an age-old question. Actually, question of the ages. What does a blessing of God look like? What does a blessing of God look like? Because there are many sources, numerous sources in our society that claim to answer that question. We see it all the time. It's not uncommon to hear uh, celebrities, after being handed uh, an award of some sort, after making a, a movie that is somewhat foul, and they get the award and stand on the stage, or, or, or perhaps even uh, a musician or a rap star uh, who just had an album go platinum, perhaps laced with, with, with foul lyrics. You'll hear them say, God has really blessed me. Is that so? Really, is that so? Is that what the blessing of God looks like? And it's the members of our culture as well, those who elevate those people to that status. Because we're the ones buying the tickets, the culture's buying the tickets, they're buying the albums. So it isn't the celebrity alone who's making that declaration. That this is what the blessing of God looks like, right? It's everyone who is feeding that. They think that is the blessing of God. That, that, that person getting the award, they're just acting as the spokesperson for the culture, right? This is what the blessing of God looks like. Millions of dollars 
And, uh, of course, tens of millions of people will adore them. Those people obviously reckon that that is the blessing of God. Now, though I disagree with them, does that mean that all celebrities are evil? No, not necessarily. Does it mean that all millionaires are corrupt? That there are no Christian millionaires? No, it doesn't mean that at all. I wouldn't say that either. It simply means that we will know them by their fruits. We will know them by their fruits. Whether or not a blessing truly originates from God, or whether that blessing originates from elsewhere, from, from, the, uh, from the culture, whether or not it will uh, in a, become fruitful in the end for God's kingdom, whether that blessing of God will be fruitful, we will find out ultimately as God blesses. But John the Baptist told Israel, this is way back in Luke chapter 3, verse 8. You remember this? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and it is thrown into the fire. Jesus repeats that so often. You will know them by their fruits. The fruit of repentance is what we need to be seen as having. So John would propose... It's impossible, really, to be awash in unrepentant sin and then have the fruits of that sin serve as an indicator that that is God's blessing. Can't happen. Can't happen. That is not God's blessing. It doesn't matter how nice of a car you drive. doesn't matter how big your pension is. doesn't matter how many acres you own. They are not alone by themselves an evidence of God's blessing. Jesus never says, folks, blessed are the immoral. They're not blessed. While John the Baptist suggests repentance from sin, a pure and holy life, and bearing godly fruit, those are the evidences that God's actually working in your life, regardless of whether you have financial problems or physical issues or other ailments, or depending upon uh, what social status. That doesn't matter either. Where society views you, isn't an indication of the blessing of God. And we'll get to that in just a moment. These beatitudes or declarations of blessings are given to set this record straight. That's why Jesus offers them. Believe it or not, Pastor Weiler got into this a little bit this morning in his Bible Life group. Believe it or not, folks, health, wealth, affluence, they were the cultural... Not only cultural, also religious indicators. They were the religiously accepted indicators of Jesus' day of whether or not God was blessing you. They were the indicators. Prosperity was the false teacher's standard. It was the gold standard for them. Whether or not God was blessing you. That's how you could know. Your health doing good? Your bank account's full? You wearing nice clothes and everything? God is blessing you. Prospering indicated that that you're righteous. You're in a good standing with God. He's rewarding you for it. And therefore, you can know by those things that you're receiving God's blessing. Meanwhile, the poor and the sick and the homeless, those are the people in Jesus' day that were viewed as sinners. Remember John chapter uh, chapter 9, verse 2. There was a man born blind from birth. Remember, as the disciples were asking Jesus, who sinned, this man 
or his parents? That was the question. What sin has caused this? Because that man is suffering because he's a sinner or his parents are a sinner. What caused this? That, that was their immediate conclusion. Because why is there this suffering if there wasn't sin involved? And they must have never read Job. And Jesus said, wasn't this man's sin or his parents' sin, but that the righteousness of God might be displayed through him. Uh, I'm so pleased, folks, that the 21st century church has moved way beyond this misunderstanding, huh? The foolishness. <laughs> oh. So in effect, Jesus here offers a completely different standard than what the people were, were used to being taught by the Pharisees and the false teachers of their day. This is completely contrary. Jesus says to his disciples, that would include us, we are his disciples in verse 20, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That phrase there, poor in spirit, could also be translated, you might see that in your in your study Bible, if you have uh, Matthew opened, it could also be translated, those who are not spiritually arrogant. The poor in spirit. They're not spiritually arrogant. The Lord said to Israel, through the prophet Isaiah, to this one I will look, this is God speaking, to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit. So was this something new that Jesus was teaching? No, something very old. The Holman Christian Standard Bible translates Isaiah's Hebrew in this way, again with God saying, I will look favorably on this kind of person, one who is humble, submissive in spirit. It's Isaiah 66, verse 2. That's God's standard. That's God's standard. The Old Testament asserted, blessed are the spiritually humble. Mary the mother of Jesus. She was chosen to bear God's son because he looked favorably. That's Luke 1 verse 48. God looked favorably on her humble state as a bond slave. Was she rich? No. No. We know uh, from our study back then, both her and Joseph, they were actually quite poor, very poor. And uh, yet she declares in her Magnificat, Remember as we studied, she said, From this time on, all generations will count me blessed. It's not just Mary's words. In fact, Elizabeth, her relative, at the same occasion, also described Mary in the following way. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what, happened, of what was spoken to her by the Lord. Elizabeth said that Mary is blessed. Mary acknowledges that she is blessed. And that pronounced uh, divine blessing on Mary, it's the same term that Jesus uses of all the Beatitudes, of all the blessings, exact same term. It is a Greek word, makarios, contrary to what you usually hear, and I know you've usually heard this, it doesn't merely mean happy, all right? That, that, that's not the extent of this word. As the president of Dallas Seminary, Mark Bailey, affirmed in his class on the Gospels, Pastor Weiler just went through this and I reviewed some tapes. He said, uh, pa- uh, President Bailey said, these aren't the be happy attitudes. That's not what they are, just be happy. Uh, Jesus is not calling upon Christians to merely have a better attitude, 
about our state that we're in, about our condition that we might be having to bear or suffer in our life. It's not just a call, hey, just be happier. That's not it, it at all. That's not the extent of this. Erdman's Bible Dictionary suggests across the Old Testament Hebrew and the New Testament Greek, the term blessed biblically indicates to bestow goodness and favor and to invoke such qualities upon another. To invoke goodness and favor upon another. In Luke's Gospel, especially in the narrative of Mary, it's easy to visualize the term blessed implies the bestowing of divine favor. The bestowing of divine favor. God's favor. God bestows and invokes His blessing, His divine favor on His people. Does God the Father have the sovereign right to do that? Pastor Weiler, do you have the right as a father to give your son a blessing? Are you required to go other places in town and give another person's son the same blessing? You have the right to bless your children. God the Father has the right to bestow His divine blessing on His people. And that's what blessed means. The divine favor of God, just as it was experienced in a different manner through Mary in her situation. Folks, that ought to make us really happy, right? Certainly happiness is in view. How then do we receive this this favor, God's favor, this divine blessing? Follow closely with me just for a moment. Matthew says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to offer a paraphrase. Divinely favored are the spiritually humble, for theirs is the kingdom. Divinely favored are the spiritually humble, for theirs is the kingdom. You good grammar students know the tense in this verse is present, right? Yours is the kingdom. Present tense. It suggests an existing reality. The spiritual humble, those who are spiritually humble, they are blessed because God has already granted them His kingdom. He's already granted it. Yours is the kingdom. What does that say about their spiritual condition? Those that Jesus is speaking to. Their hearts are already spiritually regenerated. They're already regenerate. They they have been born again. Jesus informs Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Unless you are born again by the Spirit of God, you cannot enter the kingdom, right? So if you've got the kingdom, if yours is the kingdom, you have been born again by the Spirit of God. These are believers, folks. Jesus is speaking in verse 20 to believers. It's describing people who've already been divinely favored. They've already received God's grace. Theirs is the kingdom. They're believers. The spiritually humble possess the kingdom of God, and they are spiritually humble precisely because their hearts have been regenerated by the Spirit of God. That's the reason that they're humble. They understand the pride and the humility. Why we're called sheep. 
the reasons that we should be humble. Christians understand this. Folks, don't even try to propose that the spiritually unregenerate unbeliever out in the street can be humble. Or that they can possess the kingdom. They can't have either one. Um, that, That would be impossible. Unsaved folks, unsaved people, no matter how modest in appearance, how little they, they, may, they make themselves look. Folks, they're still prideful at heart. Still prideful at heart. Sometimes even making yourself look extra little, that's seeking attention from people. You want people to notice just how humble you are. They're prideful at heart. Unbelievers are prideful at heart. Just as their father who, who fell from heaven was prideful at heart. Their father, Satan. Folks, we need to kind of dispel the myth that people who are disproportionately, disproportionately now, unassuming, very, very meek, they're just automatically spiritual. If they don't know Christ and they don't know their, their humble state as a sheep and just why we need a shepherd, they're not humble. They're proud. The other, thing we, other myth that we need to dispel is that humility sometimes, or or in in some way, implies weakness. Humility in a person, uh, uh, reckoning our estate and our need for God, doesn't imply weakness. Just like meekness doesn't imply weakness in the Bible. It's a person who has a correct assessment of themselves. That's strength, folks. We'll talk about that more on another occasion. But when you think humility or, or, or humble, don't think simply that someone's the weak, you know, little weakling that thinks nothing of themselves. That's not an accurate biblical understanding of humility. Humility is wise. Humility discards pride. It puts away pride because it's nonsense. Pride's, pride's about the most dangerous serpent, folks, that we could hand to our children to play with. Pride is very, very dangerous. The boastful pride of life, it's not from the Father. It's not from the Father, it's from the world, 1 John 2.16. Pride is our spiritual enemy. It is an enemy of Christians. We need to recognize it as an enemy and assess it correctly as our enemy. There's a song that some of you with thinning hair are probably going to remember from the 80s by Mac Davis. It's titled, It's Hard to Be Humble. Anybody remember that one? I see some heads nodding. The opening lines go like this. Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't wait to look in the mirror because I get better looking each day. To know me is to love me. I must be a bleep of a man. Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble, but I'm doing the best that I can. Folks, doing your best to be humble isn't going to be good enough to extinguish your pride. God has to change your heart so you recognize your pride and see it for the enemy that it is. Every single one of us has to deal with this. I remember that song well. Uh, used to play on the AM radio as I'd listen in the tractor out in the field. It was intentionally written to be humorous at that time. Uh, in the recording, the, the audience is heard. 
just laughing hysterically after each line. It was to be a joke. Because in that generation, those people knew you absolutely did not compliment yourself about personal qualities or achievements. They knew that was an evidence of pride. That's what made the, jo- the, the song so hilarious. People would laugh. You don't do that. That's 1980. You didn't even publicly praise your own family members. How would a wise person handle achievements when obeying Proverbs 27 verse 2? God says, let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. Why a stranger? Because they don't have any skin in the game, right? You're hearing the the compliment from a stranger. They don't owe you anything. They can't get anything out of it. The best compliment will come from someone who's honest, right? An honest assessment. It's only a little over a generation later that old Mac Davis' song, folks, in our culture, it's come home to roost. It has really come home to roost. And pride has laid a big old egg. It's a rotten egg. It has an odor. Folks, it does. Pride has an odor. It's a bad odor. You and I battle it every day. Pride. Thinking more of ourselves than we should as a sheep. At least we can do battle. Because we have the Spirit of God living in us. But we wash our face. We put on the cologne. But the aroma of pride follows us around. It does. Pride is our enemy and it follows us everywhere. We just have to recognize it so we can do battle. Uh, Today we don't only seek praise. We direct praise selfward. That is a word I just made up. Selfward. We direct praise selfward. A cursory glance of God's word suggests praise appears some 140 to 150 times in the book of Psalms depending upon your English translation. That's in Psalms alone, between 140 to 150 times. Who do you suspect praise is directed toward throughout the Bible? Not just those 140, 150 times in Psalms, not just in the Old Testament, in the prophets, and in the New Testament, over and over again, with a couple small exceptions of the stranger who compliments or praises. Who do you think receives praise in the Bible? God. God receives praise in the Bible. God alone. Can you think of any place in the Bible? This is your study for the week. Is there any place in the Bible where self-praise is acceptable? I don't know of any. You might be able to share something with me my next week. Let me know. I would think you would not find that. That self-praise, self-word is acceptable. Self-praise is pride. Self-praise is pride. Can we conclude as Christians that commending ourselves and teaching our children by example to do the same, that that, that, that is pleasing to God? Can we conclude that? Is boasting an indication you and I are humble? Will God bless that? Is that the blessing of God? 
being prideful? Would we think that mimicking the world, what we see day in, day out in the world, the way the world behaves, every television show, every radio host you listen to, would we think as Christians mimicking the world by behaving and acting and speaking prideful and self-congratulatory would provide our children any spiritual advantage? Could we conclude that? Will it draw them closer to God? Or are a boastful attitude, worldly accomplishment, spiritual pride, all those things are they intricately linked in the Bible? Here's a couple examples. Think of the consequence of Nebuchadnezzar boasting over the empire that he thought that he built. Had to chew some grass, didn't he? God said, I built that empire. Or, or when it comes to beauty, think Proverbs 11, verse 22. As a ring of gold in a swine's snout, so is a beautiful woman who lacks discretion. Think about that in the next selfie. Guys, think about that in the next selfie. Some of the stuff you see today. Some of the stuff you see today, you know what I'm talking about. Um, Something uh, about our intelligence, an opportunity to amass wealth. How do we think about that? Deuteronomy 8.18 says, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who has given you the power, the ability to make the wealth. Again, God gets the praise. Athleticism. Who wove that world champion DNA? Who put it together? Who fashioned you while you were still in the womb? Who put you together? Who assembled you? Who then should receive glory for the touchdown? Ask Tebow. Who receives the glory? Who receives the praise? Folks, we cannot seek glory and admiration from the world and simultaneously humble ourselves before God. We just have to recognize it. We're all in this together. Several days after the game, I watched the post-Super Bowl interview of Nick Foles. If you didn't watch the game, he was the winning quarterback uh, for the Philadelphia Eagles. Uh, This is not a personal endorsement. I don't know the man. Just observations. But Foles is currently attending seminary. He is training to be a Christian pastor after his NFL career concludes. And when he was praised for his performance, this is the post-game interview, a performance, by the way, that was spectacular. A spectacular performance. Where did he direct the praise as a Christian, publicly on TV, and on the microphone. Did he, pre- did he point it southward? No. No, he rede- redirected his, the success to God. He attributed it to his faith in Jesus. He commended his teammates that made it possible. And he even commended and, and uh, pointed admiration of the greatness of the opposing quarterback on the other team, who also had a great game, Tom Brady. 
He, made it, he, he minimized his role. Not artificially either. I was impressed with this at the end because remember we can artificially minimize ourselves as to seek more attention. And at the end he acknowledged that he was doing his part, that he worked hard to do his part for the team and that work paid off. And he said, the payoff is that we're, we're, we're world champs. But he didn't take the glory for himself. He pointed to God. Folks, Scripture indicates God resists the proud and the boastful and those who are arrogant. That's what Scripture indicates. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and He will exalt you when? At the proper time. And we should let our praise not come from our own lips, Scripture says, but from the lips of others, even complete strangers. That's the best kind of compliment. Complete strangers. They don't know you. No skin in the game, folks. So remember that. It's not that you never compliment. I don't want that to come across in that way. Compliment someone. There's plenty of places in Scripture that talk about encouraging others. That can involve a compliment. But it's been, become my impression, observing pride, observing my own heart, what we see in ministry, my impression is that spiritual pride causes us to seek a compliment. And it's also our spiritual pride that causes us to withhold a compliment when it's due. Both ways. We, just, we have to recognize the enemy. The enemy is pride. We have no excuses, folks. As Christians, we have no excuses. Genuine humility is not a characteristic of a bygone generation from the 70s or 80s, nor is it outdated because God's Word does not change. The culture might change. They might get more proud and arrogant and boastful, but God's Word never change. Spirit-indwelt Christians, we have the capacity, if we'll recognize it, for the indwelling Holy Spirit, we have the capacity to resist the pride. We have that capacity uh, by the power of God, the displays of pride. And, and when we humble ourselves, not just an attention-grabbing type of humbling ourselves, um, but as, as we humble ourselves, truly humble ourselves, it's an assurance when we can be humble that we have received the divine, divine favor of God. Divinely favored are the humble. We've received His favor. We can, we can humble ourselves. It proves we've entered into the kingdom when we've received the divine favor of God. So what does God's blessing look like? Does it look like the award? Does it look like a Super Bowl trophy? Because two different personalities can receive that. What does the divine favor of God look like? Humility. Humility. Being spiritually humble is the blessing of God. That's what it looks like, a humble person. My impression of the woes, if you look at verse 24, it's not that being wealthy or well-fed or laughing or receiving a compliment from time to time is by itself an indication of evil. I don't think that's at all what's trying to be communicated there. Except when a person's attitude isn't spiritually humble. Then you've got a problem. The woes are to those who love receiving praises from the world, from all men. Praises. Uh, Likewise, 
to them we see offer, uh, Jesus offers, as we're offered the kingdom in the present tense, He offers them a guarantee in the present tense. Verse 24, and then it's followed by a promise of future woe. Verse 24, Woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. That's His promise to them. The here and now. Almost all translations convey this as a completed action of some kind. You've already received your comfort. Even if that reader may still be presently experiencing the comfort and is going to have comfort for a few more years before they finally pass on, Jesus says, you've received the full extent of your comfort. That is all you will have is what you have in this life. That's it. Your money in this life is, is all the consolation that you'll ever get if you're not spiritually humble. Question. Is Jesus here speaking to believers or unbelievers? If all the consolation they're going to get is in this kingdom, the worldly kingdom, unbelievers. Unbelievers. Now he's speaking to unbelievers. What lies in their future? Verse 25 tells them, although they are rich, Therefore, they are well fed now. They will experience hunger when the kingdom of God is consummated. They will be hungry. They who laugh together now in all their worldly successes, and then in their laughter in the future, they're going to mourn and they're going to weep. Jesus says, Woe to you. Woe to you. Woe is the gravest of denunciations given by Jesus. Theirs is not the kingdom. Theirs is not the kingdom. Theirs is Gehenna. Some of your Bibles will translate that fiery hell. That is their destiny. It's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. The location of Gehenna, you've probably heard from time to time, uh, or the place that's identified as hell or called hell. It, it, it identifies with a location outside of Jerusalem where, where trash was burned. And there was so much trash hauled out there and burned all the time, it was a perpetual fire. You've heard that explanation, right? That's one explanation, but it doesn't give the full picture. It's worse than that. A lot worse than that. The Old Testament gives an explanation of Gehenna. And it's called the Valley of Gehenna. You know where I'm going with this? The Valley of Gehenna was the location that the evil kings took their infant children and offered them up to Molech by burning them as a child sacrifice. That's the fire. That is the fire, the Valley of Gehenna. It's where they worshipped the false gods and burned their children. In pronouncing woes, Jesus is indicating, that's where you're going. That's where you're going. The eternal fire, a place where uh, there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, that place where you took your children and where you murdered them, that's where you're going. It's a fiery hell where the worm does not die and the fire is never quenched. So apply that to verse 26. Woe to you when all men, notice that all men speak well of you. For their fathers used to treat the false prophets the same way. The allusion here by Jesus, of course, is to false teachers, those who are not teaching the truth. Um, folks, would you like to be a preacher? Preacher of God's Word. Do you think ministry in general, 
women's ministry, missions work. Um, do you think ministry is a great place to persuade people to like you? Do you, do you think it's an it's a opportunity of popularity? Well, you're reading the same stuff I am. Look again at the verse. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. When there's a consensus in the culture, when everybody's thinking well of you as a, as a religious teacher, when there's that consens- uh, uh, consensus that what you teach is pleasant to everyone, woe to you. Woe to you. Narrow is the way to life and there are few who find it. Another quote from President Bailey at Dallas Seminary would say, if you ever find yourself in the majority, you're in the wrong group. You're in the wrong group. When you're getting invited and when you're being applauded on Oprah, folks, as a religious teacher, woe to you. Woe to you when people speak well of you. What then is the right crowd to be in? What's the right crowd to join? That's the one that receives God's favor. The divine favor. The humble crowd. You want to be in the humble crowd. Notice, for the humble in spirit, all these blessings. Both in Matthew, you look at Luke as well. They'll be eternally experienced in the future. Ours is the kingdom. Those of us who know God. Ours is the kingdom. Compare that to the woes. Think about it. Which are you going to take? That's a no-brainer. That's a no-brainer. All their blessings and the woes, they're temporal. They're experienced now. And they're all going to pass away. For Christians, ours is the kingdom, folks. It belongs to us. It's ours. But it has not yet come. We're waiting on it. The disciples asked Jesus, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Jesus replied, it's not for you to know the times or the epics. Get to witnessing. Christ is sitting on His throne. He is seated at the right hand of God. He did ascend to heaven. He's seated on His throne. But has He inaugurated the kingdom? Take a look around. You don't, you don't get that sense in the Bible. You don't get that sense that Christ is ruling from His throne with the corruption and, and all the, the woes that we see in our culture. No, the kingdom is still coming. Just before his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and on the week that he was going to be crucified, Jesus' disciples supposed at that that time, they supposed the kingdom of God was going to be established. Remember they were laying down the palm branches and other things. They were still thinking this was going to come out good. It will. But at that moment, they thought it was going to come out good. What parable did Christ give to them in Luke 19? We'll get to go through this one in our study. It's the parable of the money. Or Minas. The parable of the money. And describing himself in that parable, Jesus says, A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. I'm going and then I'm going to return. He also left each of his slaves with ten Minas, or Minas, as they'd say, to do business while he was away, right? He gave them something to invest in his kingdom with. And when he returned, what was the nobleman going to do? He was going to reward them, right? He was going to reward them for what they had done for him while he was away. Likewise, the future tense of the Beatitudes promises future reward for faithful service now. 
That's a point of the Beatitudes. Be ready, I'm coming with more blessings. More blessings. They're not only to show what a righteous life looks like, merciful and and kind and gracious. Uh, It's also a promise of blessings when Christ returns. Verse 21, Blessed are you who hunger now. You who hunger. Matthew adds, You who hunger for righteousness. For you shall be satisfied. Folks, do you hunger for righteousness? Do you want to see righteousness? If you're a Christian and you want to live a godly life, a good life, one that honors God, you probably long for righteousness to be established in society. You're probably grieved by exploitation and abuse and corruption and all those things. When the kingdom comes, folks, one of the first things that we are going to experience when we see our king is he is going to establish righteousness. Perfect righteousness. The king will be on his throne with a rod of righteousness. Hebrews 1 verse 8, but to the son he says, or of the son he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. He's going to rule with a righteous scepter. The righteousness of his kingdom. Lesson is, folks, we who pursue righteousness now, those who hunger for righteousness, those of us who want to see righteousness, we're promised to be satisfied. We will be satisfied when he comes. Perfect satisfaction. Verse 21, Blessed are you who weep and mourn, Matthew adds, for you shall laugh and be comforted. Think about what grieves you, folks. What grieves you? What makes you cry? The broken relationships, uh, the health problems, the, the poverty, the pain that you experience. Think about those things that make you cry. The loneliness. The loneliness. In Revelation 7, verse 17, and in Revelation 21, verse 4, we will see the Lamb on His throne. He will wipe away every tear. There will no longer be any death, any mourning, no crying, or pain. That's a blessing that's coming. These are the first two blessings are going to be ones that every Christian receives. We're all going to experience perfect righteousness and comfort. Today we might lack, you will be satisfied. You will be satisfied. There will also be additional rewards as we wrap up. They're going to be contingent on service, just like the Minas. Verse 22, Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great. Your reward will be great in heaven, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. That's the good prophets, the ones who told the truth. They got mistreated well. If you bear his name to some level, you're going to be ostracized. You're going to be scorned to some level. Hebrews 13, verse 12, Therefore Jesus also, it says, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. They took him outside the gate to crucify him, right? The writer of Hebrews says, let's go outside with him to the gate, outside the camp. Let's go out and suffer with him bearing his reproach. Hebrews 13, 12. Each Christian will be rewarded in proportion to the, the courage or the veracity of their witness. 
It's not going to be contingent on positive results, folks. You're going to get scorned. You're going to be rewarded anyhow. That's good news as we share the good news. We surely don't want to be rejected. We don't desire that. We don't strive to be offensive or to stir up strife with anyone. We obviously don't do that. But on this earth, we will, like the true prophets of God that went before us, we will suffer rejection for His name. But on that day that the Son of Man returns, we will leap for joy, for our reward in heaven is great. It is great. You can take a closer look at Matthew's Beatitudes when you have time. They indicate there will be numerous other blessings in proportion to our service through demonstrating mercy, acting with gentleness, serving as peacemakers, etc. But all the Beatitudes on the list demand that we first be spiritually humble. You have to first enter the kingdom and humble yourselves. Really hard to be merciful and a peacemaker and other things if you aren't humble. That's why that's a condition of entering the kingdom. You who are poor in spirit, you're spiritually humble. Yours is the kingdom. What does the blessing, the divine favor of God, look like today? Humility. Humility. What will divine favor of God look like when He returns? Rewards and blessings. The blessings of God. Folks, when He hoisted that Super Bowl trophy, Nick Foles participating in a game where pride usually reigns supreme, Nick Foles seemed to recognize the stage that he was standing on. Didn't belong to him. It wasn't his. And as Christians, the stage that we stand on belongs entirely to God. Blessed are the humble, for theirs is the kingdom. Let's pray.